Hey, welcome to the Rooted to Live podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for sharing these podcasts with others. It's really a privilege for me to share with you. And this episode really continues the last of uh, the series that we've been in, really looking at who we are in Christ, what God says of us, how to view ourselves in light of the Father's view of us. And we've been really working through the book of Ephesians, or this letter to the believers in Ephesus, and this episode just continues in that vein. As we started this episode, I was thinking recently about unsolved mysteries, things that uh, we know there's answers to, but we just don't know the answers. When you think of mysteries, what do you think of? Um, For me, an everyday kind of mystery is uh, going downstairs to have some breakfast and amazingly finding out... uh, the cereal that I knew we had yesterday and the milk I knew we had yesterday somehow vanishes. Now, of course, we do have five kids, but that can't be the answer because nobody would put an empty box of cereal back in the pantry, right? They would throw it away and nobody would put a gallon of milk that's emptied to the bottom ounce back in the refrigerator. It's just a mystery. Or sometimes I go to grab a few cookies that I know we've had in the pantry and I'd love to have just a little bit of a treat. And I go in there and the The bag is in there, the box of cookies is in there, but the cookies themselves aren't in the box. They have vanished. (laughs) When you think of mysteries, what do you think of what comes to mind? Even more so concerning the things of the Lord, having, having God's mind in mind. The passage that we're looking at in this episode is really revolving around the idea of a mystery and looking at... God's plan of uniting people to himself and with one another. Uh, And that at one time was a mystery to people. How could God do that? How could God take people from different backgrounds and different belief and then under common belief in Christ make them something new together? And it's really a mystery that's needing revealing. Paul understands this as he's writing to the believers in Ephesus, a message that would have spread all the way across Asia Minor. And we really need the message today. Our world is desperate for this message. And so this is really what we see in Ephesians chapter 3. And I'll start uh, reading in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Hmm. How the mystery was made known... To me by revelation as I have written briefly. I'll just pause here for a second. In verse 1, just to set up some context here, Paul is in prison in Rome because of serving Jesus. More specifically, because of his faithfulness to the minister to minister the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Jewish opposition arose against him and colluded with Roman officials. And he was attacked in Jerusalem and put on trial in Caesarea and in Rome. So when he writes for this reason, the context tells us the reason. The reason was for making it for making known that through Jesus, Jewish and Gentile believers are in one new family of faith, as we saw from the preaching context. He's in prison for making that known. So for this reason, Paul's in prison, the reason being sharing the gospel of the mystery of God and reconciliation and what is found in Christ and who we are in Christ. Yet Paul doesn't say he's a prisoner of Caesar, but of whom? He says he's a prisoner of Christ, and, and gladly so. He, he believes that he belongs to Christ. Isn't that amazing? And what he's saying in a sense is like, you can imprison the messenger, but not the message. So what is the message? Well, that's what he goes on to say. 
starting in verse 2 of chapter 3, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So really what Paul is doing is he's making known the mystery of our new identity. Paul's role in God's redemptive plan is to explain the mystery of Christ. And what is the mystery? Well, it's defined in verse 6. Gospel implications is really what he's talking about. That Gentile believers of every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation will now be included in the God's family and his promise. The gospel and its implications are Paul's message and the message of every believer in the church. That's what this message is for. But is it possible that professing believers and local churches emphasize a different message than the message that Paul has in mind? Really, the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, bringing all people who are believers into one new person, one new man, one new temple. Sometimes, it's, I would say, it's most likely that believers individually and churches collectively may emphasize a very different message. Think about the kind of messages you grew up hearing. and Think about the kind of... Things we see like in church buildings and the signs that we see, like God answers an email and other things like that. Um, you know, you know, you want uh, air conditioning, come in here and find some real, you know, life as, as opposed to what you might find in the afterlife in hell. It's just messages of condemnation or sarcasm, things like this. Um, I saw a sign one time, a church sign that said, uh, all it said was uh, CH. Um, CH and it said what's missing and it says you are. I think that might be like a joking sarcastic way of guilting someone to come to a church building. But think about the other message sometimes we communicate. Sometimes for some believers especially in the days in which we live now when this podcast is being recorded, some people their main message is the message of their favorite candidate for political office or a certain um a political topic. Or maybe there's a cause in mind. But truthfully, if if it's lower than the cause of Christ and the mission of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is in one sense a lesser message. Now, I know how they can combine and how people can decide, well, you know, what I'm sharing has, has gospel implications, and I get that. But what does your life communicate as the message? If we were to... I'll write a book based on what you were communicating through how you live. What would be written? The way we live is really like the sign of what we're really about. What does your life proclaim? Would it be a message of God's great love expressed through Jesus, crucified, risen, reigning, and returning? Well, the mystery Paul is speaking of is both the message and the implications of the gospel. And we get to live it. Look at the next section, or let me read for you the next section. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
So he moves from the mystery of our new identity to the grace of our new identity in Christ. God's grace is poured out to us through Jesus, and that should humble us, of course. This is why Paul writes that he is the least of all the saints. This isn't like a false humility. This is how he sees himself, that he was an approver of one. He was a approver of people uh, uh, taking the life of Jesus' followers. He knows what he's been a part of. He knows his past, and that's why grace is so amazing to him. So for him, when he reflects on who he is without Jesus, he's moved to marvel at the grace of God in his life. He, he feels privileged to serve Jesus. But God's grace to us doesn't only humble us, it really empowers us for his mission. Verse 8 says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? That's the mission of our new identity. It's, a, it's to point, a point of God's love, grace, and power to us is that our lives should be filled with incalculable or unsearchable or inexhaustible riches of Christ. That's the mission is to make known the, the inexhaustible, unsearchable riches of Christ, namely, chiefly, the love of God in Christ, shown to us in Christ, and the work in the death and resurrection of Christ. When we see that word like unsearchable, uh, that's what one translation says. Another may say um, inexhaustible. This word is really unique. It's like Paul is essentially creating a word here. But we see the idea of this word elsewhere, like in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, the text says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Hmm. To him be glory forever. Amen. The idea here is like to try to describe the love of God or the riches of God in Christ. It's indescribable we know it's inexhaustible inexhaustible incalculable is what one theologian says so another way it's stated is oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways his glories his riches his grace are incalculable inexhaustible well what are some examples of those riches well, we could say like bringing spiritually dead people to life, uh, providing uh, grace that brings people to faith, forgiveness of our sins, declaring us righteous. These are riches of Christ, conquering death and Satan, reconciling us to God. That's a rich richness of God's love. That's These are the riches found in Christ, giving us his Holy Spirit to live in and by, making us holy. His love, joy, peace, rest would be a rich uh, reward in Christ right a treasure in christ what about our inclusion also then in the riches of jesus it's all found through the gospel or in the gospel when we think of the christian life or our identity in him we have to be careful not to make the point of all this though ourselves right we aren't the point it doesn't end with us this point the point of all this is to actually now make him known to others that's the mission of our new identity in christ is to love him and love others, making him known, knowing Christ and making him known for their good and, of course, God's glory. So a purpose for God's grace in our lives is that his light would shine through us to others for him. That's what verse 9 says. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Well, what plan needs to be shown to everyone? That's also in verse 10 then. So that through the church... 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Hmm. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the wisdom of our new identity in Christ. Paul says that everyone needs to know that the church is to reveal the manifold wisdom of God through the heavens or throughout the heavens and the entire spiritual realm. We we see this idea of the heavens or spiritual realm elsewhere. In First Peter chapter one, verse twelve, the text says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in these thing in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Well, what would angels want to joyfully look into? In Luke chapter 15, verse 10, we see this idea that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So all this to say is we shine a light actually even to the heavenly places and the rulers and the authorities by how we live. There's What we're saying is um, angels look at grace from God to us and marvel. While demonic forces look on in fear and tremble, and God is revealing his plan to the powers through his existence of his church that is made up of believers from all nations. And that's what this whole context of this part of the letter of Ephesians is about, that God is doing something new, bringing all these people together from different backgrounds and creating one new movement. It's amazing. It's a mystery. But there's a mission to it, and that's to even even speak if it were possible to preach um, by our lives to the principalities of the world. Hmm. Yet this whole plan then is made up of, by God's wisdom, and this whole plan of God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. Jesus taking on the punishment of our sin, providing the cure to our eternal death disease, dying on a cross and rising again. This is nonsense to an unbelieving world, but it is the power of God. It's God's power on display, and it's God's wisdom. However, people, principalities, and powers may refuse to see the wisdom of God in the crucifixion. But what they should see is what was created by the cross. They can't see the crucifixion anymore. It's not in front of their face. Um, They can try to dwell on it, but they refuse. So what can be in front of them? The church. Hmm. The existence of the church or all believers is an evidence to the power of the cross. The manifold wisdom of God shines most brightly through those who believe, and that is the church. Verse 11 tells us that this was all according to the Father's eternal purpose realized in Jesus. The church is a witness of the glory of God as we boldly live in his love. Let me read verse 12 for you again. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Hmm. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you which is your glory. Verse 12 reminds us of our, the access that we're giving because, given because of our new identity in Christ. Because of Jesus, we have a boldness in life. We have an access to God with confidence to God. Maybe you know this passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and a help to help in time of need. We can experience a nearness to God that the saints in the Old Testament never could have imagined. 
we come to God freely, openly, without constraint. No temple, no ceremonial cleansing, just straight to the Father through faith in the Son, anytime, anywhere, by the power of God's Holy Spirit. He hears us. He is for us. He is with us. And you are never alone. Even in the most pressing of circumstances, like Paul writing from prison, you're never alone. Paul concludes this section of the letter by saying, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Verse 1 of chapter 3 and verse 13 go together, kind of like bookends, as if what is between them is one long parenthetical thought. What Paul is saying is Christ is so much more precious than freedom and comfort for Paul. Because of Jesus, the love of God in his life, he was willing to suffer so that others might know the love of God. Paul's Paul's suffering was as a result of his doing what is best for those who had not yet known the mystery of God's redemptive plan in Jesus. In other words, the value of Christ was displayed in his imprisonment. Some folks, though, I just want to caution here. Maybe as you hear these passages, you hear about people that are giving their lives to Christ, the martyrs. Um, We read Paul and say, we might even think to ourselves with some false guilt, asking ourselves, like, would I be willing to go to prison for others to know Christ? And either in pride, affirm ourselves, or shamefully decline. But I don't think that's the question to ask here. What about asking God, show me your love. Would you please show me your love that I might learn that nothing in the world compares to you? And when God comes through in that, that's a life that will be lived well. Um, And it may be imprisonment at some point, but we don't need to ask ourselves, would I be willing to go to prison for Christ? Simply ask the Father, show me your love. Show me your love in a way that I can't miss it. Remind me of your love that you've shown me through Christ. Show me even right now. As I'm recording this message just outside the window of the place I'm recording, uh, it's thundering and raining. And I just think of the goodness of the Lord and providing us what we need. In the passage, there's a transition at this point. It's something that we need. (laughs) Paul transitions back to the beginning with this phrase, for this reason, in verse 14. says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He's just flowing to praise here, considering the mystery of the gospel. He just flows into praise after telling people, don't be worried for me. Don't Don't be too concerned for me. I want you to know that the Lord is with me. Hmm. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Why is he saying the phrase for this reason again? Well, for the reason, what reason? The mystery that God, motivated by love, is bringing together a new family. All people who believe and belong to Jesus. And Paul says he kneels before God. And the typical position for this culture was one of standing during prayer. But When we see kneeling as it relates to prayer in the Bible, it indicates humility and emotion and a desperation for God. We see this elsewhere in Scripture in Psalm 95. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people He watches over, the flock under His care. So Paul, in prison, in humble desperation, kneels before God on behalf of these believers in Ephesus, knowing they need something that only God can give. And what what does Paul ask God for? What, it will, what he asks Paul, God for is what is our great need as well. Starting in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's begging God for the believers to come to recognize more and more his great love for them. Paul is asking God to empower the believers to experience the reality of their new identity in Jesus. For his power to know his love. And that's that's the truth. We need God's power to even know God's love. Paul's request is that they would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner self. Why? Why the inner self? Well, the inner self is where our life flows, what we think, do, and say, where the courage comes to proclaim the gospel, where we fight sin, and where the love for others flows. Life from the inside out is addressed often in Scripture. That's what Paul's asking for. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Or as Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 23, verse 26, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside may also be clean. This rain, (laughs) it's just outside my window, pounding the door right now, pounding the window right now. First clean the the inside, and then the outside will take care of itself. Life is meant to be lived from the inside out. Jesus says from from the inside, from the heart, come all the things of life. So we need something built up on the inside. Why? Why do we need this strengthening internally? Because by faith we believe it is there, the inner self, where Christ dwells and rules by the Holy Spirit. The word dwell here is intentional. It's the word used to mean to settle down or to make like a permanent resident. As he takes up residence, we begin to be renewed and reflect his, his character. So the question really is, who or what, who or what dwells in your heart? Paul asks for the believers to be strengthened with God's power so that Christ may take up residence well in their hearts. Why? Well, that's what the next section says, starting in verse 18. They may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. For strength, why is Paul asking for strength to comprehend the love of Christ? Verse 17 says that believers are rooted and grounded in God's love. That's an identity claim. That's truth. And yet to move from knowledge to comprehension, to just know about something versus knowing something, or from knowledge to belief, is really what Paul's getting at here. What did God do to root, ground, or establish people in his love? Well, he pursues, he provides, he forgives, redeems, reconciles, saves, secures. Why? Because of his love. I'm wondering, as I've been thinking about this for quite some time, I'm wondering if some believers find the topic of God's love boring or like entry-level Christianity, believing there are deeper things to look into. Yet Paul is asking God to help these believers know God's love because he knows there's nothing deeper. In verse 18, he writes of God's love, the breadth, length, height, and depth, that they're immeasurable, limitless. These are limitless dimensions. 
Maybe you remember this in Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor breadth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is it true that nothing separates us from God's love? Because Jesus dwells in us. Wherever we go, God's love is there. And the versions of love we find or offer in our world are often conditional or shrouded in expectation or ultimatums. But God loves perfectly and purely, and he loves you. And I can't stress this enough. That's the point of our ministry. It's really the point of all these podcasts is that you are dearly loved the father so loves you that he sent the son the son jesus christ our lord so loved you he went to the cross the spirit so loves that he takes up residence in your body you are loved and the more religious background you may have the more religious the culture or performance culture you're a part of it's it's harder to believe because the love of god in christ for you has nothing to do with your performance and yet because of God's performance for you. And the love of God in Christ is for you is vast, Paul is saying. And, and many of us would intellectually and theologically agree, but what about belief in such a way that it renewed your mind and how you view you, how you viewed your life or other people or the church, this world? When God's power causes us to grow in the knowledge of his love, it actually moves us to freedom encouraged to take steps of faith because you realize there's nothing to lose to live as christ to die as gain would be the sentiment how would your life flow or function differently than it does now if you believed god's love for you outshined any perceived risk or possible failure and i'm starting to wonder and then re-wonder is it possible that god might be more loving than we've believed In the text, you may have not realized it, but there's no command there in what I've read so far. In the past, when I've taught this passage, it would be at this point that I would invite people to consider like radical steps of faith because of God's love being greater than any possible failure. And I think that was a mistake. It was an honest mistake. I was operating in ignorance, but I was trying my best. I just didn't know. But Paul isn't asking the Ephesians to try harder to love God or do more. He's asking God to strengthen their their faith so that they would grow in their understanding of Jesus' love toward them. And this is why later Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love, just live loved. It means living in love or moment-to-moment understanding and then re-realizing that he loves you. Living loved instead of looking for love. Living approved instead of being desperate for approval. Living recognized instead of striving for recognition. Hmm. And God's love doesn't just like change things for the future, but the present and the past as well. In the midst of whatever you think is the worst thing you've ever done or has been done to you, he loves you. If you're a bad spouse, a lousy parent, or an addict, he loves you. If you're self-righteous, fearful, anxious, or depressed, he loves you. What would it look like just to live love today instead of hustling for love? So why would Paul ask God to grant strength to comprehend the love of Christ? Well, because we often don't live in it we often believe the lie that god doesn't love us we believe the lie that he couldn't possibly love us in light of the things we've done or what has been done to us we we function as if we need to appease him or win his love and we think how could he love me 
In the text, Paul is asking God to help believers grow in seeing, savoring, and experiencing the reality of God's love. Sometimes I've wondered in times of doubt and discouragement. You know what, Paul? That'd be easy for you. It'd be easier for you because you had this encounter. You were, you were knocked uh, by the over by the love of God. Christ confronted you. You saw Him. You had an invisible counter with Him. You heard His voice. You experienced something supernatural in your discipleship and equipping to do what you do. You have no doubt of God's presence, Paul. You've no doubt of God's power and love. But how can I know the love of God if I can't see Him? And if I can't see or hear Jesus, how, how does this happen? How can we live loved if we can't see him? And first Peter, in First Peter, we see Peter writing to believers that need encouragement. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, uh, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's a special time in which we live to choose to believe and walk in belief. Not by sight, but by faith, of course. And Jesus even says this to the disciples, including, or especially Thomas, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are they that believe without seeing. In Ephesians 3, verse 18, says, we grasp God's love with all the saints, meaning this is a community realization. All the saints means everyone who identifies as a follower of Jesus. So God shapes us and grows us in the knowledge of his love through authentic biblical community as we reflect the gospel together. But isn't it important to note that having people in our lives to do this with is such a treasure? But for many of us, it's one of our greatest challenges. And I hope you have a people that want this. I hope that you have friends who want a community realization of God's love through Jesus to us. Because something happens as we grow in the strength of understanding God's love for us together. And what is that? Well, Paul tells us in verse 19, the second part of verse 19 that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Hmm. As we grow in the strength of understanding God's love for us, we become filled with the fullness of God. So living loved, we gain spiritual maturity. And why should this matter? Because it's possible to exist years and years and years in life knowing about Jesus, but not any further in the freedom that is found in the love of Christ. And this can happen actually to a whole church faith community, a whole church family. And it actually did with this church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2 tells us that two tells us that eventually the church in Ephesus lost their first love. They lost their understanding. They lost the manifold wisdom of God in their minds and in their inner self. They lost sight of everything that this whole Christian life is about. Loving God and loving others. As you yourself are loved or as you love yourself. Paul knows that a strengthened with Holy Spirit power people who are growing in comprehension of God's love and lives in that love is a thriving, maturing people, a loving church, a movement that has freedom and the fullness of God. And the thought of this possibility, as he's writing this down, the thought of this moves Paul to praise. And that's the last two verses I'll share today. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Paul is moved to praise and even thinking about these things. 
He's moved to praise and thinking about what a maturing body would look like who's living loved, living approved, and understanding more and more the manifold wisdom of God. When Paul writes in verse 21, to him be glory in the church, what does he mean? Well, the context tells us, verse 10, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. The reason God called the diversified yet unified churches into being was to reflect the glory of God of his unfathomable wisdom to the universe. So your opportunity, my opportunity, our opportunity today is to be this song that Paul is writing in Ephesians chapter 3, to be a corporate, visible, and audible doxology to God. The power of God's love in and through his people goes beyond what we can think. And God can do more than we've ever thought to ask him to do. So what if God said, I can do more in and through your life, your family, your church, than you've yet asked or thought? What should we be asking God to do? (laughs) Think about it. Take some time. When God's power meets God's love in the heart of a believer, mountains are moved. And we could say... For me to live, my my life is to live as Christ. The matters of the world and the concerns of the world and the troubles of the world, they're not my matters and concerns or troubles. I'm on mission and I have a mission. It's to make known the manifold wisdom of God as expressed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to lovingly and honestly and tenderly and truthfully share again and again and again and again with the believer and those who do not yet know the love of God in Christ. Live loved, live approved, live affirmed. That's the truth. Come to grip and grasp and hold deeply to your identity in Christ. And from that place, life will flow, character will change, and you'll be in process. Not perfection. Yet. You are dearly loved. Never doubt it. 